with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your word heralded, preached, and proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word uh, right now and that you would by it um, encourage and shape um, your church and give her confidence in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would receive the glory due your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, what Brother Gary read for us from Isaiah 54 is one of the most beautiful passages in the Scripture where God is talking to his covenant people. And I noticed if you, I wonder if you noticed that, that he is addressing his covenant people as one body, as a bride. This beautiful picture of God, the husband, and the covenant people as his bride in this covenant love, this permanent covenant, one flesh love. And this is no accident. This is no accident of God's design or accident of the gospel of God's love for his people. This is something that God knit into the fabric of, of creation. And it is no surprise then that the Lord created humanity into two complementary halves, male and female, it says he created them. And it was not very good until God had completed humanity, male and female. And what I would be jealous to demonstrate here from the word of God right now is that the creation of male and female intentionally creating us into two complementary genders is similar to God creating humanity with a need for oxygen and also with a need for water. Because in Scripture, God compares himself to being our life, to living water for us. He has knit those things into creation so that by them we would understand more completely and more it with more delight and fullness of who he is and what he is to the church, his people, his covenant people. And so what we have seen earlier in this series of sermons is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners by his sinless life, which was on behalf of his people, counted for them. His death for our sins, taking what we deserved, his resurrection from the dead. He, he has come to forgive our sins and to restore us to fellowship with God. And in order to restore the glory uh, that we had by God to our original very good design, that we would know and glorify and enjoy God according to that design to which we were originally created, according to the identity which God himself has given, not one that the world feels we ought to fulfill, not the one that we even feel or sense, but the image and identity that God has given by his own declarations. From the mouth of God, we hear the kind of glory that he created us for. What is the peculiar glory of God that we were created to give him and then enjoy about him? And so what I intend to show from God's word this morning is that God created us, male and female, to display the glorious doctrine of 
union with Christ. One of the sweetest, most precious doctrines. One of the, the doctrines that our fellowship and affection from God rests solidly upon. Union with Christ. So our first point as we build toward that is this. First point, in a marriage, the fullness of the human race is to be represented. The fullness of the human race is to be re- represented in marriage. And we read earlier in the series, Genesis 1 and 2, which, God, which, which Jesus then weaves together in Matthew 19, that God created humanity, male and female, and for this reason, marriage is to be one man and one woman until death do them part. It was for this reason. So let's watch Jesus do this, put Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together and say this is the reason why he created marriage, male and female. Genesis, or Matthew chapter 19, 1 to 6. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, Genesis 1, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So marriage, we see here, is the reunion into one flesh, the reunion of humanity, the two halves of humanity, Marriage is then male and female. Jesus says, because God made humanity male and female in his image, and the two shall not be separated. The fullness of the design of humanity. This is not about tall or short or skin color. You don't need all of that represented in a marriage. The fullness of humanity, male and female. The reunion of the image bearers of God for his glory to be known and shown the fullness of his character and purposes of the world, leadership and protection and nurturing and helping. And so this this means then that a male homosexual union has no woman and is declaring that a woman is unnecessary. And a female homosexual union has no man and is therefore declaring that a man is unnecessary. This one flesh body, this reunion of the image of God, in a sense, is saying to one of the genders, I have no need of you. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 12. So you first then have to deny that marriage exists for God's purposes, not our own. And then you'd have to deny that God has the authority to demand the kind of glory he wishes to be demonstrated in marriage. What is the kind of glory for God that he wishes to be demonstrated for marriage? And it says here that he desires the complementary union of male and female in the most intimate and permanent union of two image bearers, each for the other. The gift of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is the forgiveness for sins that we have committed against God's design and also a promise of renewal according to God's design. 
And so there is forgiveness for all of these sins against the image and design of God. And it is glorious when a person who has embraced an identity that's contrary to the one which God gives them, when that person broken in repentance with no strength of their own calls on Christ and trusts his gospel to forgive them, and then being forgiven then to renew them, no matter how difficult it is to deny our desires. So the promise of the gospel is that forgiveness is offered to all who repent and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will renew men as men in the identity which he gives them, and women as women in the identity which he gives them to glorify God in our unique and glorious callings. So that brings us then to our second point. The members of a marriage are arranged according to God's design to demonstrate the gospel of Christ. The members of a marriage are arranged according to God's design to demonstrate the gospel of Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, God creates marriage and humanity with two complementary genders, which together made one to be a very good glorification. We saw this in humanity as a whole last week, right? Male and female required for humanity as a whole to be very good. And you can say two, in a sense, becoming one. Now, why is it that God has designed us so? To demonstrate and delight in the eternal covenant love and redemption of Christ, of the church. See, we don't exist to say things uh, which we think are, about, are most glorious about God. We exist to demonstrate and enjoy those things about God which he thinks are most glorious. And so too does marriage. It doesn't exist to say the things that we think are most glorious about God. No, marriage exists and has been designed, and it, it finds its meaning in the fact that God ordained marriage to say those things which he himself desires to be declared and demonstrated and even enjoyed. And we're going to see here in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is going to say the point, the glory, the image of God designed marriage to proclaim and enjoy is the glory of Christ and the church. The way of a man with a woman is a mystery. Oh, what a mystery, but it is about Christ and the church. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read 22 to 33. See this with me. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife seize that she respects her husband. So not only the part of marriage, male and female, not only the length of marriage, which is permanent, but the arrangement of those parts are designed by God for the glory of God in the gospel and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I wonder, can you see the richness in the, 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 of the doctrine of the union with Christ in this passage? Now, what is the doctrine of union with Christ? It means we are united to Christ by faith. This is how we are saved. We're saved by being united to him. We are united to him by faith in his gospel. Not by being worthy. That's not what unites us to Christ. Not by going to church. Not by keeping God's law. Not by loving God. Not by loving neighbor. Not by keeping COVID orders. Not by breaking COVID orders. By faith alone in Christ's death and resurrection and his reign, Christ becomes your head. That means you are added to his body. The church is the body of Christ. Oh, that doesn't mean that we get to be Jesus to the world. No, that's not what we mean. We are not Christ. Any more than the husband is the wife or the wife is the husband. No, we are Christ's body and he is our head. So what does that mean? Well, it means different roles yet united in one body. It means that though Christ is not the church, he considers her holiness and her glory and her life and her pain and her hope as if it was the, that, all that of his own body. That God sees the church and Christ as inseparably together. Recall the most terrifying words that the Apostle Paul, while he was being called, had ever heard in his life. He hears the voice of Jesus Christ say, why do you persecute me? I was only persecuting the church. You persecuted the church, Paul. She is my body. Thus you persecuted me. I consider her own pain as if it were my own. Tremble, young man. That is my bride. She is to me my very body. This is what union with Christ is. This eternal covenant, this relationship that is permanent and sealed with an oath, the very oath of God, sworn by Christ and God the Father. And this was that, these, this marriage, this covenant that, that sinners, these sinners chosen, assembled by the Lord, these wicked, wicked sinners would be called to be Christ's body. A bride chosen for Christ by God. Her sins would then be considered as the sins of Christ. Her punishment would be borne by Christ as if it was his own punishment. Any sin that the church would commit, God the Father would count against him. And dear church, his righteousness would be counted toward the church as if she had herself obeyed the law of God. He would conquer death as if it were his problem to deal with. 
And though we have not died and risen from the dead, our head has, and so for all intents and purposes, death is conquered for us. Now this is the gospel, dear brothers and sisters. We are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection because we are his body. We are one with him. We are not him. We are one with him, our head. Different roles, yet united in one body. No confusion about who is who. But united in one body. Now this is why there is no miscarriage of justice for the Lord Jesus Christ to bear the sin and punishment of the church. She's not merely a stranger. She is his body, united by a covenant before the Lord God. And we are one in God's eyes with Christ. What God had joined together, none can separate. Think of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so it is no injustice For a man's hands to labor with a hammer and saw to pay off a debt that was caused by his feet kicking in a stained glass window. If he incurs a great debt by doing that with his feet, it's no injustice that he pays off that debt with his hands. Why? Because his feet and his hands belong to one body. This is why it's no miscarriage of justice when Christ dies for the church, his body and his Her sins are counted against him and his righteousness counted to her, credited to her account, though she didn't do it. This is true of a godly marriage as well. These concepts. A husband sees his wife as his own body, says Paul. The two have become one by a covenant designed to be a living parable of the gospel. And thank God there's no confusion about Christ's role and the church's role. (laughs) Thank God for that. And in a marriage, each partner, man and wife, each with a glorious role to play, to demonstrate and enjoy the sweetness of the marriage of Christ and the church. The man in love leads in holiness and protects and defends. And he considers this mission of leading and defending his family, his wife, is worth giving his life up for. Now, that's a dishonor in the eyes of the world, isn't it? That's a a dishonor to be be the one whose life, if a choice must be made to be the one whose life is put at, at greater risk, that's a pretty big dishonor in the eyes of the world. First to die. It was certainly... Despicable in the eyes of the Pharisees when they heard that this was the plan for the Messiah to die for the bride. The disciples too thought this was an undignified mess that is not glorious. If Israel were to have a dignified head, it would be one, not one that would lead and die for them, thought the Pharisees and the disciples. Dying for the head, dying for the king. That would be a glorious version of headship and leadership. This, Christ in the church, too inglorious. Oh, but what does God the Father think about this? What does God the Father think of Christ's leadership and 
sacrifice, glorious. So husbands were instructed to play the part of Christ by leading, for taking responsibility for a family, for your wives, and and loving them, and putting yourself in a position where you are more at risk than they are. And your sons are to be trained to do the same. First for their moms and sisters, and then also for their wives and children someday, should God grant them. This is demeaning to wives, says the world. Oh, be careful what we speak, because that's what the Pharisees thought of the gospel of Christ, that it was demeaning to the people of God rather than a glorious honoring of them. No matter what the world thinks, the Lord Jesus Christ thinks this is beautiful. This is an honoring. Wives would embrace this as an honor to them. The way the church is meant to embrace the sacrificial leadership of Christ as an honor, not a shame bestowed on the church. To have someone take loving responsibility for your life and holiness and joy, that's no insult. That is a glory. The Titanic is a fantastic example of our confusion from history here, brothers and sisters. Now we don't know what to think of this this, uh, historical fact that there were not enough lifeboats and that some shouted, women and children first. Now, wait, is that an insult? We don't even know what to think of that. Is it a glory or an insult to women? When a man shouts, women and children first, Well, if we ask the Lord, does he think it's an insult to women? Or does he think this is a glory? We're going to see that he sees it as a glorious embrace of their original design, and he loves it. It is a glory to these women to embrace that and take those seats on the lifeboat. Now, is it a glory or an insult to the men who hear that announcement? First to die, really? It's a glory in the eyes of the Lord in whose image they were made. This is the glory I designed you to show, the Lord would say. Now who, sh- who leads by shouting that? Who insists that this should happen? Well, the men should insist. They should lead by insisting this should happen. And so husbands lovingly and sacrificially lead and protect your wives in holiness as Christ loved the church and wives respect and submit to your husbands, embracing such leadership as a glory to you and to God rather than as an insult. God so designed marriage that the gospel of Christ, the one flesh permanent union of Christ and the church would be displayed while honoring both men and women by upholding the dignity of the image of God which they were made complementary in. Each giving their maker a peculiar glory that he deserves and calls them to give, and then delighting in that glory. That brings us to our third point. If you got the outline yesterday, there was, um, so there was a mistake in it, but this is how it should read. If you're taking notes or correcting those, both married and unmarried men and women fulfill their redeemed design within the family of God. Now, the providence of God 
His sovereignty over all things, organizing the, the affairs and circumstances of history and all of us. His providence and plan means he chooses for us different circumstances which are for his glory and for us to know his love. And so by this, some are unmarried, but do not wish to be. They would love to glorify God in this way and also enjoy this gift from God. Some expect or wish to be married one day, but are not yet. Some are widowed. Some are unable to be married for some reason or another by God's kind and painful providence. Some are divorced because of a rejection of the gospel illustrating vows of marriage. Some are unmarried for the sake of the gospel. And none are robbed of their ability to glorify God in his design for manhood and womanhood. That's for a number of reasons. First, as, we, as we've seen, manhood and womanhood goes deeper than merely anatomy. It goes deeper than just being able to father children or conceive children. You can glorify God as a man or as a woman using those inner constitutions of masculinity and femininity, which, yes, were meant to help with marriage and parenting as moms and wives and husbands and fathers, yet they are still yours for the glory of God, married or not. Second, whether you are without family or marriage for those reasons or for other reasons, what remains is that God's design for the church is meant to be a balm and a restoration of what was lost by the sins of Adam and Eve. Christ intends the church to be a restoration, a restoration of those things lost, a family and other things lost. The church being the bride of Christ and also the family of God is a place where both married and unmarried men and women fulfill their redeemed design and where they delight in God for those things. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, speaking of unmarried brothers and sisters, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so we see here a believer who intentionally remains unmarried or childless to have more freedoms or pursue career or financial gains or riches to avoid responsibilities is clearly dishonoring God and his design. But a believer who intentionally is unmarried or who intentionally remains unmarried to, better, to be better free to serve the family of God, to help beautify the bride of Christ, that is a glorious thing to the Lord. Fully exercising manhood and womanhood in their honoring of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And so the design of the church, which you're going to turn to next, and its own body parts is designed to utilize these gifts so that the church itself delights in being the bride of Christ and desires to live in such a way that Christ finds to be beautiful, to follow Christ as her head in the mission given to him by his Father. That is taking us to our fourth point, which is the members of the church are arranged 
according to God's design to demonstrate the gospel of Christ. We recall that the glory and design of a woman and the glory and design of a man go merely go beyond merely anatomy. It definitely involves that, but it's not limited to that. It's deeper, it's sweeter, it's richer. Now more could be said biblically, but we turned our attention to two of these characteristics for each gender. Men as glorifying God as our leader and defender. Women glorifying God as our nurturer and helper. The man with this forward-facing, follow me, and let's do it this way. And, and the woman with a turning toward the family for its nurturing. Now, not exclusively, with a focused attention and responsibility and design for those gifts to a family. The gospel doesn't erase those distinctions. But it restores them and, and uses them for the glory of God. So we expect that this is demonstrated in the church itself. We walk in the doors of the church. We don't lose our distinctions. Our marriages don't dissolve. Our masculinity isn't erased, neither femininity. Let's see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 to 16. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. One of the most controversial passages, to be sure, but there's some sweetness here that we miss if we don't fix our attention directly at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is Paul speaking. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and remain, re, re, maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman was, is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to, for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. We'll stop there. Now, we noticed, we noticed in the Old Testament last week, a call to present yourself to the world in a way which embraces your design as a woman or as a man. Here we see this expressed in the church. Much controversy and disagreement over the full meaning of head coverings exists, but we can see some things very clearly here. And let's focus on that. It might make the unclear things more clear. First, as we've seen already, that the command to lead in holiness, this idea of headship, to exercise authority to lead is given to the man and the responsibility to help accomplish that is given to the woman. Each are specially gifted and designed for that. That is the meaning here of 
for. The woman was created for the man to help him glorify God and fulfill the leadership which God gave to him. Particularly in the family and the family of God, we see this. Now the question of head covering seems to be therefore about how people are identifying. Visibly identifying themselves. The same way in Deuteronomy 22 is about wearing a woman's garment or wearing a man's garment. Visibly identifying yourself. So perhaps it is women trying to be identified as men or men as women. Or married women as single women or married men as single men. It reminds us of Deuteronomy 22, doesn't it? The church isn't a reversal of the complementary, distinct design of the image of God as male and female image bearers. It's not a place where they are ignored or denied or reversed, but where that glory is celebrated for the glory of God. Now, verse 14, does not nature itself. Now, what does that mean? It could mean that we should know this even without the word of God. As Romans 1 would say, we're without excuse. The word of God is not even necessary to tell us these things. These are things that you should know by nature. It's just built into humanity. You know that it's inappropriate for women to present themselves as men and vice versa. It could also mean that it's inappropriate for married women to want everyone to treat them as single. We should know that. What would you say about a man who intentionally tries to hide the fact that he is married? It could also mean that in nature, for the most part, male and female animals publicly display themselves according to their gender. And they make it clear if they are available for a mate and what kind of mate they are available for. In any case, we can see the point remains the same. What is clear is that the design for masculinity and femininity and marriage is not to be hidden or reversed or something we are to be ashamed of. It's not something that the gospel gets rid of, but restores. There's a peculiar role for men, a peculiar role for women, so that a church without women would be an incomplete church. And a church without men would be an incomplete church. Now, you can't say that about height. You can't say that about skin color. You can't say that about hair color. But you can say that about men and women. A church without women would be an incomplete church. And a church without men would be an incomplete church. No church can say that a woman is a good substitute for a man. Or that a man is a good substitute for a woman. And the ear cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. I want to see this expressed in Paul's commands for Titus, for the ordering of the church. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, you see this focused attention here of wives in the supporting the leadership of their husbands and the nurturing of the family, which wives and moms are actually gloriously designed and called for. 
And this is beautiful. The other women of the church, single and married, are called to help in this task. Now consider this, Paul. Unmarried Paul exercised fatherly, masculine calling by being as a father in the faith to young men that he discipled. O Timothy, my true child in the faith. You can also see this in the, in the description of the widows in 1 Timothy 5 and in elsewhere, actively serving God in their God-giving design. A lovely honor given to children to design and call moms with the task of focused nurturing of them. It's a lovely honor to women to assign other women to focus their discipling attention on them. An honoring of the nurturing task, which is a quality of God's own characteristics himself. This is a task unique to women in the church, to disciple and train young women or women new to the faith. You don't want men doing this. (laughs) It would be a dishonor to women to say that a man is a good substitute for a woman in this regard. An unmarried woman can do this. A widowed woman can do this. A woman who has been the victim of a divorce from an ungodly husband can do this, but a man can not. He's not designed or called to do this. And rather than it being an insult to him, it would be an insult to godly women to say that a man could be a good substitute for a woman in discipling women or nurturing children. We see this. This sheds more light on 1 Corinthians 12 that we read last week. 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, think 1 Peter, we read that last week. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member uh, is honored, all rejoice together. Remember Peter telling husband that the wives are the weaker vessel, but with the same glory, and he expects men to honor them for that peculiar glory. Not to take advantage, but to take care that it is honored. Now every organization needs to organize itself in such a way that it understands that there are people who are most likely to first be harmed, to first face attack, I think of David and Uriah. He sent him into battle into the place where he would most likely hit, be hit. Now there are parts which have a peculiar glory which would be dishonored if they are placed in a vulnerable position. There is no doubt that the public ministry and leadership of the word of God is an exposed position. Elder and pastor exposed. If a persecuting government were to burst into a church, they would likely start by arresting the man preaching from the pulpit, and then after that would follow the elders. Who's responsible for this? 
And the elders should rightly say, we are responsible for this. It's not that only the preachers and elders will be persecuted or face attacks from within the church from false teachers. It is simply that they are intentionally placed in such a position that they are the ones at greater risk of it. Requiring men to fulfill these most vulnerable positions is a godly way to honor the gospel and to give special glory that God has given to women and the special glory that he has given to men. We'll see this in 1 Timothy 2, 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That's 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Here again, we see this posture again. We keep seeing this over and over. Men with a peculiar focus on leading and teaching the word of God with authority, taking responsibility, standing before God to give an account for the church entrusted to their leadership, defending and leading, and women with a peculiar focus on nurturing, here called childbearing. Now, there is, of course, controversy over this passage as well. We know the gospel. No one's saved by doing any of these things. What then does it mean? Well, if we recognize it as saying the same thing as in Ephesians 5 and Titus 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 and other passages, we can then take childbearing to be a summary, a euphemism, as if you would, a summary of the nurturing and helping inward-turning way that women are peculiarly designed and assigned to glorify and enjoy God, to care for a church and families. And the leadership and protection of men in the church honors them and honors that calling as it guards their ability to do this and focus on this. We'll expose ourselves so that we can protect, so that we can honor the peculiar ability for you to do this. Notice this command and design and glory is rooted in creation. Do you notice that? This is the case in Ephesians 5, rooted in creation. 1 Corinthians 11, also rooted in creation. It was rooted also in the fall into sin in verse 14 here. And here's how this is working. Adam exposed Eve to the attacks of, to that little church of two people, Adam and Eve. Genesis records that Adam was there the whole time. And notice that when the Lord called them to stand to give an account for the fact that they had sinned, who was it that he called to give an account for that little family, that little church? Adam, said God. So too this design follows in the church. In Hebrews 13, we have very similar wording here. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you see this very similar pattern where Adam is having to stand to give an account, and there you're going to have the elders of a church to stand to give an account before the Lord? This is my church. What did you do? That design again, those who stand in front of the church and keep the church members from being publicly exposed unnecessarily to the attacks of the devil from persecution and false teachers. They're responsible to lead. One of you also noted that God will call them to stand to give an account as he did Adam for the souls of the church, for those who are standing to give an account for their holiness and well-being of the, the family of God. It's meant to be a benefit and honor bestowed on the church rather than an honor bestowed on elders. And this is meant to be a living parable, a real and true parable to be sure, but one that points to a much greater reality. And that is this. The church is the bride and body of Christ, united to him in a permanent union, sworn by an oath by God himself. God would count her sins against Christ. He would die for her and he would conquer death for her and he would rise again. And all this would count for her because she is one with him and he would be her head, her leader. The Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, stands before God to give an account for all who have been given to him, the church. And we see this pattern rooted then or put into creation and marriage and also now into the church this glorious gift to people that someone will stand to give an account for them. No elder or pastor can pay for the sins of the church. No husband can pay for his own sins, let alone for the sins of his wife. But dear brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great husband of the church, has paid for her sins. So gender is no accident it was knit into the fabric of humanity to properly be able to understand and bear the image of God in all its glorious fullness, to be able to comprehend the beauty of the gospel of two becoming one, not two same people coming one, but two complementary people coming one where the roles are not disorganized. It's not unclear what role Christ plays or the church plays. Two becoming one. So to marriage was no accident designed to demonstrate the perfect match that God would give. No one, not, it wouldn't be one that the church would have to find for herself. God provided a match. And then God would make them one, Christ in the church. All of these things are appropriate designs to imitate and glorify the God of the gospel. They are merely signs, though, Merely images of the glory of Christ and the church. They are merely image, but they are appropriate images designed by God for his glory. Church, oh, men and women, he is worthy of the glory. Not that we wish he would get. Not the glory which culture says is glorious. 
But he is glory of, worthy of this kind of glory because it is glorious. And he is worthy of this kind of glory. I'm going to end by, by quoting Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us the perfect match, the perfect complement for this one flesh union to unite us to Christ Jesus. And we are grateful for this beautiful gift of this covenant headship, Lord, where you see the two as one, where the one will stand to give an account for the other and lay down his life. And we are grateful that Christ is the husband of the church. And Lord, we are grateful that you made us in your image. We pray that you'd forgive us for all the ways that we've sinned against your commands and calls for us to glorify you. We have thought that your glory was not glorious and we would prefer another one, something more glorious. But Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for those sins, that Christ has now washed us and he's paid for those sins with his death. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in us. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you would then also shape us. Would you sanctify us, Lord, for those of us really wrestling with our own identities, that we would prefer giving you and enjoying a different kind of glory, Lord. I pray that you would give us grace and strength by the power of your spirit to glorify you according to the design of Christ in the church, Lord. Would you strengthen us? Lord, I pray that you would come soon, that Christ would come for his bride. In Jesus' name. Amen.